Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. If you're anything like me, you had never heard of Silicon Valley Bank, hereafter referred to as SVP. But tomorrow you're going to know all about it because it just collapsed. It turns out that what Forbes described as one of the best banks in America would not meet many people's tests for financial fidelity. They didn't have a risk executive, for example, for almost a year. Why? Because she, who describes herself as a queer woman of color of working class background, not that any of that is of any relevance to her ability as a risk executive in one of America's top banks, she had been seconded to construct the world's most beautiful LGBTQ plus I and all the other alphabet soup that I've now lost track of. She spent an entire month organizing pride when she could have been counting the risks that were coming down the tracks and which have brought the bank to its knees. In fact, it's not on its knees, it's lying flat on its face. This bank Of course, because it catered for startup businesses across America, is now going to cascade this disaster from coast to coast. Startup companies in particular are going to find it impossible to meet their payroll next Friday or at the end of the calendar month, more likely. And they're going to have to collapse themselves won't be able to pay their employees. But that's the least of the problem. You see, although this bank had over $200 billion in its accounts, $200 billion in its accounts, it's now not worth even a row of beans. But when you look at the list of bad debts in banks in America alone, the amount comes to $650 billion in unrealizable assets. A polite way of saying people that owe them money but can't pay it, won't pay it. And when there's a run on a bank, as there was on SVB, and when it collapses, and when the state is either unable or unwilling to step in and save the bank, there's a run on every bank, everybody, including you if you had $250,000 in the bank, you'd be trying to take out money on Monday, wouldn't you? I certainly would. If I had more than a quarter of a million dollars, I'd be at the bank at nine o'clock on Monday morning. 
because I wouldn't trust my government any more than Joe Biden's government could be trusted to protect my money. Indeed, the law only requires them to protect up to $250,000. So we're going to see a cascade of business closures right across America. We're almost certainly going to see a cascade of bank collapses right across America. It's not the fluttering of a butterfly's wings. It is a gigantic gale that is just now emanating this weekend from the United States, but it will be a hurricane by the time it reaches Europe, which is already teetering on the brink of economic disaster for all the reasons you know and that I have been adumbrating for more than 12 months, indeed many years. Our system isn't working. It's not worth the paper it isn't written on. They laugh. I'm going to put this to one of the world's great minds, Richard Wolff, Professor Wolff, in just a few minutes. They laughed at those of us who said, we need to find another economic system. This economic system, which depends on war and exploitation and environmental depredation, is not fit for purpose. Quite apart from the war, the exploitation, the depredation, the degeneracy of our natural resources, quite apart from all of that, it is inherently flawed and waiting for the day when it will collapse. They all laughed, but they're not laughing now. This, as many commentators are now predicting, though not in the mainstream media, that as far as I know, hasn't even covered the collapse of this bank yet are saying that it's going to be worse than the crash in 2008. Because, of course, we merely put sticking plasters in the holes on the roof of our economic and financial system in 2008. Nothing fundamentally changed or was resolved. Neoliberal, late-stage capitalism is a natural disaster for the vast majority of the peoples of the world. And I'm sorry to say, you're going to find all of that out big time in Technicolor, Oscar-rated Technicolor in the course of the next seven days and in the next coming weeks. That's a very, very big story. And I'm probably bringing it to you first. A bigger story in geopolitical terms, took place in Beijing earlier this week. And I don't know about you, but I have not seen it on the BBC. I have not seen it on CNN. I have not seen it anywhere in the mainstream media. Saudi Arabia and Iran, two of the world's biggest enemies, a, an absolute chasm between them, proxy wars raging, across the Arab world because of them and a chasm built on a schismatic Islamic division between Sunni and Shia which for a time seemed to consume the Muslim world, particularly, I'm sorry to say, on the Sunni side. Many of them, you may have seen, relaunched my lecture in uh, Beirut on Al-Mayadeen television 
in which I appealed to the young Muslims there, stop this obsession with Sunni and Shia. They're stealing your things while you're fighting each other. You may see it if you look on social media after the show. Iran and Saudi Arabia could not have been bigger enemies. And that had enormous implications. In Yemen, for example, all these years, all these dead people, all that famine, all that disease, the four horsemen of the apocalypse were riding across the Yemen as a direct result of Saudi-Iranian antipathy. Ditto in Syria. Where do you think all these head choppers, throat cutters, heart eaters in the alphabet soup of fanatic extremism, where was their wellspring? You know it if you think about it for a moment. And that too was posed as a Sunni Shia thing. Now that Saudi Arabia and Iran have kissed and made up restore diplomatic relations, exchanged ambassadors to Tehran and Riyadh. This is of enormous global significance. But there's only one thing even more significant about it. It was brokered by China. It took place in Beijing, not at Camp David, not on the Capitol Hill, not on the White House lawn. It was brokered in Beijing. The Chinese foreign minister, a man I know quite well, he brokered this peace. He sat down with these two parties for many days in Beijing, and they signed an historic rapprochement between ancient and bitter enemies. What price now the United States leadership of the world? What price now the United States role in the Middle East, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world? The tectonic plates have shifted and the sun is rising in the east. China is now the place to go to resolve conflicts. Washington and London, Berlin and Paris, are the places to go if you want conflict, if you want to destroy your country like Ukraine is being destroyed. Take your lead from Washington. If you want to resolve ancient enmities, then go to Beijing. Take the Silk Road, take the Belt and Road and go to Beijing. That, to me, is a matter of enormous significance. I'll leave both those subjects there because both of our guests, Garland Nixon and Professor Richard Wolff, will be talking more deeply about them. And I want to have time to address the Gary Lineker affair. Now, I don't know if Gary's white. I always thought he was. Yasmin Alibi Brown says that it wouldn't be happening to him if he was white. I'll leave that to the psychiatrists to work out. Gary Lineker is a liberal icon. He's a walking, talking mannequin for liberalism. That's why I don't like him. I liked him as a player. I quite like him as a commentator. But as a man, 
and especially as a political man, I have no time for him whatsoever. None. He's so typical of the kind of Blairite liberals that I despise more than anywhere else on the political spectrum. He even hides his income offshore to avoid paying tax on it to the country he constantly opines about. He loves the EU, but he also loves the people who are escaping from the EU, and it never seems to occur to them why refugees, migrants, are escaping the EU to come to Britain because he's too achingly liberal to ask himself or ask us for an answer to that basic conundrum. He owes the country tens of millions of pounds in unpaid taxes that the HMRC are negotiating with him about. But he's well able to pay them because you pay him millions of pounds, millions to chair for a few minutes on a Saturday night a discussion about my beloved football. Now, I dislike Gary Lineker because of his views on the EU, because of his views on the Ukraine war. He's a, he, he's a blue and yellow man, if you know what I mean. Whether he's white or not, he's blue and yellow. He's got the stars of the European Union in a halo around his head. He hated Jeremy Corbyn. He was one of the Blairite liberal caste that put Boris Johnson in power and then spent the next few years telling us how much they despised Boris Johnson. If not for people like Lineker, You'd never have heard of Suella Braverman. You'd never have heard of James Cleverly. You'd never have heard of Rashid Sanuk if it was not for people like Gary Lineker. But the BBC, seeking to suspend him, trying to force him to make an apology for a tweet in his own name about a political matter is completely beyond the pale. Why? First of all, Gary Lineker is not a politics or current affairs commentator. He's a football commentator. Secondly, he doesn't even work for the BBC. He's a freelance operator that appears on the BBC and on BT and on anywhere else that will pay him handsomely to do so. So who are the BBC to tell Gary Lineker what he can say on Twitter? I loathe what he said. I think it is a matter of utter hypocrisy what he said, but he has to have the right to say it, doesn't he? The BBC say no. They've got to appear impartial, but they have never been impartial. They weren't impartial when Lineker tweeted, Bin Corbin, 
whether he meant put him in the bin or bin Corbin, as in bin Laden, I'll leave you to decide. Perhaps he intended you to infer both. But the BBC didn't ask him to withdraw that tweet, didn't ask him to apologize for it, didn't suspend him for it, even though he was talking about the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Direct interference by Lineker in British politics. They didn't order him to take it down. Neither did they do so with Lord Sugar. Have you seen what Lord Sugar writes on Twitter? Not just about Corbyn or about me or about the Nigerian football team four years ago in the previous World Cup. Have you seen what Lineker and all these other BBC stars were saying about Qatar? Although it didn't stop them going to Qatar and picking up lots of money while they were there. They've never been impartial. Not from the day that they were founded as Lord Reith, their first controller, wrote very honestly, at the time of the general strike, he wrote, the government can rely on us not to be truly impartial in the midst of these momentous events. So they're hypocrites, all of them. Lineker's a hypocrite. Alan Sugar is a hypocrite. But the biggest hypocrites are the BBC. There's only one way out of this and Gayatri is signaling to me now that I'm going on too long. But let me say one more thing. There's only one way to resolve all of this. Abolish the state broadcaster. Scatter its budget, its gargantuan multi-billion pound budget to independent producers to produce television from their point of view. Let a thousand flowers bloom. And let the people pick the most fragrant. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, we've got a poll running, which has a staggering 18,263 votes in already, and the show has just begun. It's a basic, simple Question, is the BBC impartial? A, yes, B, no. Make sure you get your vote in before the end of the show. Now, as I often say, and I say it because I mean it, what a world it would be if my first guest was the President of the United States of America. And when you see him, if you are seeing him for the first time, you'll realize he has considerably more gravitas, intellect, and presence than, well, anyone in recent memory that occupied the White House. But for the moment, he's our hero, Professor Richard Wolff, who joins me from the United States. Professor, uh, I'd like to begin by asking you uh, the $64,000 question, though it's a lot more dollars than that. What happened to Silicon Valley Bank, and what does it mean for the rest of us? Well, I wish I could say it was unique or special or rare. It's none of those things. It's a very common occurrence. The only amazing thing to most of us uh, is that we as a society here in the United States permit this situation to continue. Let me explain. Banks many, many decades ago proved to the American people, as they have in your country and everywhere else, that they cannot be trusted with something as important as the money that makes the world go around. Since they are private capitalist enterprises, profit is their number one priority. Profit is their bottom line. They use the monetary system to make money. That's their priority. That means that they take risks. Here's the basic risk. They take in the money of depositors, individuals and businesses, paying as little as possible for that. They turn around and lend the depositors money back to the the depositors and businesses in the form of loans. They are proverbial middlemen and they make their income by taking in as much as possible at the lowest rates and lending it out at the highest possible rates. All of that is very charming unless and until they get into difficulty. For example, the depositors want their money back. Well, they can't get it because it's been lent out. So we require banks to have their own capital so they can cover that kind of situation. The problem is that if ever a really large number of their depositors want the money back, and that's exactly what happened in Silicon Valley, California, with that bank, then they are in difficulty. They have to liquidate their investments. Aha, but here's the problem. The investments of that bank were largely in 
government bonds. They lend to the government. Why? Because the government is in such difficulty here that it has to spend trillions of dollars more than it dares tax the population. So they borrow. So banks invest in those loans. Their bonds is what they're called. But they go up and down in value. So what has happened is that that bank lost depositors, had to liquidate bonds at unfavorable prices. The rest of the banking world became aware of this because we don't regulate the banks properly. And then you had the collapse. It is a small version of what happened in 2008 and 9. And the great question this weekend, rattling New York City where I sit and the whole country, is how bad will this get? How long will this last? How many other banks are hiding the same situation that can no longer be hidden by the bank in Silicon Valley, which has, I assume you know, been liquidated. It's out of existence. It's utterly bankrupt. This is a, a sign. No one should miss it. It comes three or four weeks after another failure of a private enterprise or of the government regulation to keep us safe. That was in the little town of East Palestine, Ohio, when a private profit railroad cut corners on safety, destroyed a community, thereby exposing that the government supposedly regulating them has been captured by those it's supposed to regulate, and so it doesn't do its job. But this has happened over and over. It's an endless repetition of a fundamental flaw in our system. You cannot have the social welfare protected if the people charged with doing that have a private profit objective, which is a higher priority for them. That contradiction has never been faced and never been resolved, giving us an endless series of these kinds of breakdowns, which will ramify and ripple across this country. One of the, what you've just described so eloquently uh, was featured in one of the most important books I read as, as a teenager, uh, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. It was described by Owen, the hero of the book, as the great money trick. You take a pound from someone, you lend it 10 or 100 or 1,000 times, uh, and uh, you, you, you pay the man whose pound it is as little as possible, and you charge the people you've lent it to as much as possible. It is the great money trick that you have just described there, and yet it is fundamental to our economic system. Now, they yep. laugh at people like you and me who say that our uh, economic system is fundamentally rotten and must one day come tumbling down and that we must be able to come up with a better one. Uh, uh, in that sense, what's happened all over again would be good news, Professor, except that it's going to devastate uh, perhaps thousands, maybe millions of people across the Western world over the next few weeks. Absolutely. And let me assure you, and those that are watching your program, this weekend, yesterday and today, 
all other business here in New York City, which is the economic and financial capital of the United States, if not of much of the world. All other business has been thrown away. There's a panic, an anxiety. That the question is, how much money is the government going to need once again to bail out the private capitalist system when it flounders, when its contradictions catch up with it? How much other business will not be done? How serious will the efforts be? How many others are suffering already? How many bankers are running for the exits? Most of those questions will not be answered anytime soon. The terrible beginning of the stock market tomorrow morning is the deadline uh, against which hysterical people, some of whom I know personally, are working in the government offices uh, to save, once again, to save capitalism from itself because that's their job, because they are Republicans and Democrats, and we haven't yet understood that we not only do we not have a loyal opposition, we don't have any opposition at all in terms of the power, Another which movie. is why it is so disconnected from the realities uh, that are now so frightening the United States. Well, we, we may be two peoples divided by a common language, but we are entirely united by the fact we each have a unipolar parliament and government uh, with no opposition at all. And yet, and yet, Professor, this very evening, Joe Biden and the White House tweeted that under President Biden, the economy, the American economy, is headed in the right direction. Well, it looks to me like it's headed down an Ohio railroad uh, uh, to a crash. It's a, you know, it is genuinely for me embarrassing. I, I'll give you a, a, a personal glimpse. I was a graduate student at a university here in the United States getting my PhD in economics. The university, I don't mind telling you, Yale University. A classmate of mine, a young woman, like I was a young man, her name was, um, well, Janet Yellen. She took the same courses from the same professors in the same room that I did. I know what she knows. I know she knows our economy is in among the worst periods of its life and its whole history. Let me be very quick with you. Our inflation is roaring ahead and no one knows how to stop it. The, the decision made by the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates compounds the problem because now middle income and poor people who can't afford to pay the rising prices are confronted with higher interest rates, which limit what they can do with their credit card, limit whether they can buy an automobile, block them from buying a home with the ramifying economic consequences of all this. All that you have with Mr. Biden is the normal behavior of our politicians who, when they're in power, everything is going well, and when they're out of power, everything is being badly managed by the other side. No one pays attention. No one believes them. They intone this nonsense because they don't know what else to do. They, we weren't supposed to have an inflation. We were told it was all under control by, among others, Janet Yellen. 
Now we are told, well, it is everybody else's fault, and we're going to raise interest rates. We've been doing it very fast for the last eight or nine months, and it hasn't stopped our inflation. And it's a good sign we're about to go into a recession in this year if we're not already in it. Meanwhile, we're losing the war in Ukraine. I mean, the reality is this is a country that is more and more frightened by the sequence, the accumulation of bad news, of scary developments, of, of frightening possibilities capped off when our leaders talk casually about the pros and cons of nuclear war. You really have a sense that, that we're all going off the rails here. You know, and, and I don't mind telling you, watching yesterday when the Chinese broker a peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for those Americans who pay attention, not only are we in ever deeper difficulty, but our so-called adversaries are doing better and better and achievement after achievement. Even our propaganda machines uh, are unable to overcome the reality that leaks into our consciousness. And so I, I, I'm reporting to you from a country that is more and more feeling, and people say it to each other on the streets, everything is falling apart. What is happening? And they're, they're looking for scapegoats. They are looking for magical solutions. They are hoping somehow this will straighten out. And yet the next one comes and the next one comes and the next one comes. It is an extraordinary period. Please don't be befuddled, anybody, by the comments of our political leaders between their self-serving and their out of touch with the rest of us. It is kind of a... Uh, a mysterious process of trying to figure out what they're doing uh, through the fog of what they say. Professor Wolf, you truly are the master. Thanks for that lesson for the students of the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged to you. Thanks for uh, joining us. Is the BBC impartial? Well, <laughs> uh, as I said, virtually 20,000 people have now voted. 10% say, yes, it is impartial, and 90% say it isn't. And that's on Twitter, and that's the BBC's best, because on YouTube, it's yes, 10%, no, 90%. On Telegram, it's yes, 7%, no, 93%. And on YouTube community poll, where 14,000 people have voted, it is yes, 5%. No, 95%. Your goose is cooked, auntie. And I, for one, am very, very happy about it. Let's go to Nathan in Seattle, who wants to talk about Professor Wolf's book. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, George. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having uh, Professor Wolf. He is someone who I have a tremendous amount of admiration have been able to talk to him because I would like to see someone like him running for office. I know he ran for office uh, a few decades ago, but I'm talking about uh, there's a, um, a thirst for what he's talking about. Like when he speaks of like the worker owned co-ops in Bosque and how no one there makes more than one sixth or uh, one eighth more than um, 
the poorest person, you know, eight times more, um, the poorest yeah. person's uh, base pay. Yeah. Uh, and I think we, you know, like we need someone like that um, in power. I'm also okay with, you know, like Steven Donziger or, you know, Mike Pamp Antonio, someone who, um, who has a history of fighting corporations so we can have just common sense policies where there's no corporate welfare, all money goes to worker-owned uh, businesses exclusively, and uh, that that's also how we take the stranglehold off of our culture, off of, you know, and then we start moving towards getting away from uh, uh, people who profit off of death and destruction, like the, you know, wartime economy and stuff like that. Um, so if you get, if you can get any he of the really people is, I mentioned uh, on again. Yeah, he truly is, uh, Professor Wolf truly is uh, a, a giant uh, figure uh, and presidential with it. Uh, so I don't know if he's still watching the show, but uh, I'm sure uh, that he will have heard one way or another the points you've made, Nathan. Thank you. Let's go to Africa, uh, to Nigeria, in fact, where Gooks wants to talk about the financial crisis. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Mr. George. It's my pleasure speaking to you this evening. Yeah, I want, I want to thank uh, Professor Wolf uh, for his insight and for confirming to us that uh, Janet Yellen is not stupid. She knows exactly what she's doing. All these trips to Ukraine, telling us about uh, the, uh, what do they call it, the climate change, whatever, the identity, gender identity, and all these sort of things that are going to confuse the people. I'm happy he confirmed to us that that woman knows exactly what she's doing. But this uh, latest about the bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, if you look at it, it's beginning to mirror what happened with the Lehman Brothers. And they left that one fall. I believe it was on purpose. Then they built that the other one. So is there anything like what happened in 2008 on the horizon that we don't know yet. But one thing I want us to remember is this. Andrew Jackson warned about this. And he said if the U.S. Congress does not take control of this currency, that this bank has by inflation and deflation, they will turn them, I'm paraphrasing right now. He said the, the children of the people that fought for this plan will wake up to be placed in their land. And this is happening. If you remember what happened in uh, Jekyll Island, if you need a crater from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, we found out that the U.S. government uh, has never had a sound money since 1913. This Federal Reserve came into existence. How many, how many wars have they funded? How, many, how long after it was founded that we got this first world war? And everywhere, wherever there is a crisis in the world, there is currency manipulation. It leads straight to the adopters. But no one wants to talk about it. I'm happy you are, you are shedding light on it. Thank you so much, Mr. Dodd, for all you did. No, thank you. Uh, your call shows both the erudition of the uh, people who watch this show and, and call in to it, uh, but also the geographic uh, spread that we have now uh, achieved. Uh, we are receiving calls la last uh, Wednesday. Uh, we had 110 people call the show. And... Uh, virtually from every continent and uh, from uh, countries that had never featured on our switchboard before. We really have become that open university of the airwaves and who could be a better 
teacher than Professor Wolf. I did not know that he had attended Yale University, still less that he was a classmate of Yellen. Uh, one thing, uh, two things are uh, immediately clear from that knowledge. First of all, Professor Wolf studied economics rather more intently than uh, Janet Yellen did. And secondly, who would not want to swap Professor Wolf for Yellen in the Treasury hot seat this weekend? I know I would. Uh, Simon is in Florida. Always worth hearing. Uh, Simon, welcome to the show. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. I'm so pleased that the materials that I've sent through regarding Iran and Saudi Arabia were of use to you for today's show. But Definitely. if I may be so bold sure. to add a couple of additional points. Um, one thing that Please. has been largely overlooked um, by all of the Western mainstream media is whilst the representative of the Saudi Arabian government is meeting with the Iranian national security advisor in um, Beijing. The Saudi Arabian foreign minister was actually in Russia. And the day before the Iranian-Saudi deal was announced by the Chinese, a statement was put out by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs that said, and I'll read just one sentence of it, the situation in the Gulf area, including plans for creating a collective security system that would involve the creation of mechanisms for joint responses to existing challenges and threats with the participation of all stakeholders was reviewed in detail. Now, the reason why that was so significant is the week before these, these two meetings had started in Russia and in Beijing simultaneously. The Saudis had gone to the Americans and they had said that they wanted to um, consider a normalization of relations deal with Israel. But doing that was dependent upon America giving, America giving them a security guarantee and allowing them to pursue civilian nuclear energy. Now, the Americans didn't say no, but they didn't say yes. They basically said, we're going to have to go away and think about it, which indicated they were going to consult the Israelis, because the Israelis had been very opposed to any of the Arab countries having civilian nuclear power, because they believe that could be used to produce plutonium. So whilst the Americans were going away and thinking about it, the Saudis flow off to Beijing and to um, Russia and cut a deal behind their backs the Israelis are absolutely shocked, and that's coming out in public statements. The Americans are claiming they knew all about it, and they're very happy because it's going to pursue the interests of world peace. But straight after these two deals being announced, President Putin sent a message to Z in English on the Internet. And at the very end of it, it said, I look forward to continuing to coordinate our interests in matters of regional and international security. And as a real troll, he put an emoji of a hand signing a document. How wonderful. What a wonderful call. And what a terrific man you are, Simon. Thank you for that and for the material that you sent me. I read it with interest. And uh, as I say, how lucky we are to have the audience that we do. A million people every week 
watching all or part of the mother of all talk shows and most attentive to what they hear and many of them truly brilliant students. It's quite humbling, actually. Robert is in the Bronx, wants to talk about the Iran deal. Robert, most welcome to the show. What would you like to say? Uh, thank you, George. Thank you for taking my call. I think it's great, and I think the Chinese are the ones who should broker a two-state solution. The U.S. government will never do that. Also, I want to say that two weeks ago, you had a clip of Donald Trump stating that he would end the war in 24 hours if he was elected. That's the same guy who, when he was president, the Ukrainians were bombing the Dumba and killing Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And he didn't do anything about that. All, all he was interested in is getting the, the, the was attorney general in Ukraine to find some evidence on Hunter Biden. But he knew they were bombing the Dumba, and he didn't do anything about that. He also said... He got no, elected, it's a, he absolutely uh, fair point. No, it's an absolutely fair point. Uh, he also did a lot of really bad things uh, in, uh, in killing uh, General Soleimani, for example, uh, on a peace mission at Baghdad Airport. Uh, he bombed uh, Syria, rocketed it. But he didn't start any new wars, unlike Joe Biden. And he didn't take us to the brink of World War III, unlike Joe Biden. Do you agree with me, Robert? I agree with you, but you know what? The people who are making money off this war are the same members that he has down in his club down in Florida. They're the same people. The same people who are making this money off this war are his friends down in, down in that club that he has down there in, the, in Florida. The same people. I'll tell you what, we need, okay. we, 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 we need Professor Wolf and Jimmy Dore on the ticket in 24. That's what I say. I hope you're enjoying The War of the Worlds, read by me. I'm not Orson Welles, but I'm the next best thing. And if you are, you can only be a supporter of me on Patreon, as many people are. It's a, a, extremely important to me and my family personally. And I'm grateful to them. Some of them have sent in comments. Uh, Ghoul Cormican says, The BBC has never been impartial. These days, it's the media wing of the Tory party. Same when Blair was in, when they tub-thumped for war in Iraq. I'd get rid of the license fee, like yesterday. They should move to a subscription service. I, for one, wouldn't be paying for it. You and me both, sir. Peter Kelly says the idea that any big cultural institution like the BBC with that much ideological influence is or ever has been impartial is frankly absurd. The ruling class colonized it as soon as it came into being and they have never left. Well said, Peter. David Nimmo said, I agree with Peter, particularly with the chairman appointed after an £800,000 bung to Boris Johnson. And Paul Vinogradov says the idea the BBC is impartial is one of those tests for whether you can sell someone a bridge in London going cheap. If you'll believe that, what won't you believe? On BBC Radio 2 News this morning, Rashid Sanouk's current visit to the US is further elaborated that the AUKUS squad is justified blandly as required, quote, to counter the threat of China. Who has China threatened? When? With what? This isn't journalism, it's naked propaganda and incitement to aggression. They are a disgrace to the idea of a free press or a free country. Thank you so much indeed for that. Gala Nixon, 
joins us from Washington, D.C. to talk about America, yes, but to talk about how the world is changing. Garland, welcome back uh, to the show. Always a pleasure uh, to have you on. Let's start, though, with this Silicon Valley bank. I made the point that when a butterfly flutters its wings in, in, uh, uh, in Silicon Valley, in California, then a hurricane can be expected across your country and across the world. Uh, any uh, insight into how Washington is going to attempt to tackle what might be as bad as 2008 all over again? Uh, well, I will say this, that sadly, Joe Biden probably does have a little bit of a relief there because his uh, Nord Stream hoax started to fall apart. I don't know if you were uh, following that, but Reuters, uh, you know, after the claim that there was uh, six guys on a sailboat who bombed the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, Reuters adjusted that. Uh, apparently, they've added additional boat. And I imagine that as the story un, uh, falls, uh, you know, comes unglued even more, they'll continue to add boats until they have a an entire flotilla of sailboats that uh, made their way out into the Baltic Sea and, and blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. So there's maybe some relief from the Biden administration that they don't have to face that disaster that they've created for themselves. But I mean, to be quite frank, um, people are holding their breath to, to you know, just show how broad the implications are. I'm just an average regular old person in, in, in the, you know, in, here in, in America. Not, I didn't think in any way, shape or form um, connected to the SVB bank. I had what I would consider a, a moderate amount of money that I was attempting to move in crypto yesterday. And I found out that this had affected the crypto market in a way that my money that I had was frozen. It's not my life savings by any stretch of the imagination, but just to show that, you know, how many people are affected, a person who had never even really heard of SVB Bank until now, it's had dramatic effects on the crypto market and uh, people are holding their breath. Uh, there are a lot of people um, that I've talked to that said they are considering going to the bank tomorrow to move their money to a credit union or a small bank that's more stable, which would of course mean, you know, 1929 in this uh, day and age. Um, I think this also demonstrates uh, the damage that was done by deindustrialization, because as the United States was deindustrialized, it was financialized. And now all of the um, economic powers made through these complicated financial instruments, which means that when the economy starts to fall, there is no industrial base to back it up. There's no jobs for people to go to and, and make things anymore. All of this money is created through strange and um, uh, uh, financial instruments. And as SVB falls apart, um, figuring out what caused it to fall apart will be as, as difficult as fixing it. 95% of its customers had more than a quarter of a million in the bank. So its liquidation has uh, cost uh, a very significant number of people a very great deal of money. Uh, some of them individuals, many of them companies, startup companies, one must presume, and they will now be laying off workers or having to close their doors uh, altogether. And that's just the first ripple. Uh, of those uh, directly affected. Uh, you mentioned 1929 when, when bankers and stockbrokers were leaping off tall buildings uh, and the Wall Street crash then catapulted the rest of us into the Great Depression of the 1930s, the tent cities and the dust bowls 
and all of Steinbeck's uh, uh, wonderful uh, descriptions of what uh, happened. Um, and this is all, as Professor Wolf uh, was saying, not just entirely predictable, but entirely predicted, because it is intrinsic in the fundamental dichotomy in the economic system we have, that people do things for private profit, while the public, which will be required presumably to try and bail out the consequences of the rapacious pursuit of profit by a few, will themselves be beggared either by the bailout if there is to be one, or by the consequences of no bailout if there isn't to be one. So what, what we're looking at is a couple of things, and that is, you know, this is not a, a new scenario. If we look at 1990 and 2000, every eight to 10 years for quite some time now, we've had an economic downturn. Generally, they would there would be, you know, some manner of the job loss and economic loss. But as neoliberalism entrenched itself more deeply into our system, the, the, the last couple, 2008 and potentially now, have been dramatically more um, you know, uh, 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 severe. And I think we're just looking at uh, now a situation where 2008 was never addressed and could not be addressed because it was systemic. They simply put some patches on what was going on and allowed it to expand. And now we have the Biden administration, which is simply a neocon administration. They're inept enough at their uh, foreign policy, but they have nothing when it comes to domestic policy. You can see, you know, the perfect uh, 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 symbolic issue here was East Palestine. Uh, you could not it, 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 write a movie, you couldn't write a book for a worse response than the Biden administration and Pete Buttigieg. It was a, a caricature of government. So looking at the way they handled that particular issue, you certainly know that this financial disaster um, in the hands of these incompetent people will be magnified rather than uh, rather than mitigated. So I think there is a combination of a fear that the system has dropped to us to a to a level where um the hoax is up the game is up this um the game of three card molly and hiding the money that they had is is about to fall apart and you accompany that with the biden administration who joe biden i mean he can barely find his way off of a stage anymore without either a, a service dog or you know someone to help him to guide him to a, a, an exit and there's certainly no hope that this guy and and the crew that he's put together is going to be able to do anything other than make it worse mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned foreign policy, Garland, uh, as did Professor Wolf uh, earlier. Let's take a couple uh, of uh, truly outstanding examples uh, of uh, how things are falling apart for the U.S. Uh, the sight of Saudi Arabia and Iran kissing and making up, not in Camp David or on the White House lawn, but in Beijing, under the hammer and sickle of the Chinese People's Republic. If that doesn't show the extent to which the tectonic plates have shifted, I don't know what would. Yes, and it demonstrates something uh, very profound, and that is the U.S. empire operates by creating chaos and instability in a region. If you look at the actions that we've taken over the last 20 years, invading countries, overthrowing government, meddling in the affairs of countries, 
everywhere, but particularly here for the, for the, for the purposes of this discussion, the Middle East, we've created instability uh, intentionally. Even now, the United States over the last several uh, months, has, well, the last several weeks particularly, has worked to uh, prohibit countries from being able to assist Syria in rebuilding and continue to occupy one third of Syria and to steal their resources. So China has come in and they first, now keep in mind, a few weeks ago, they released a document in which they carefully argued all of the, uh, the they made a powerful argument against U.S. hegemony. And they uh, brought in uh, the president of Iran, met with the, with the, uh, the leadership of, of China. Afterwards, they have taken an act that has worked to bring stability to um, the Middle East. And if, if anyone looks at a map and they see how the how Saudi Arabia gets their oil to the sea, they'll see they can use the Persian Gulf, which is controlled at the uh, by, at the Straits of Hormuz by um, Iran, or they can use the, I believe it's the Red Sea, which is controlled by, at the ostensibly, if Yemen has control of their country by Yemen, which is an ally of Iran, and of course they can go out the uh, out the uh, Suez Canal. So uh, Saudi Arabia greatly benefits from this because now they're guaranteed that no one's going to close down their access to the sea. They win, Iran wins, everybody wins. It isolates. Um, Israel, which will, of course, um, magnify the internal contradictions in Israel and make it more difficult for Israel to strike out at other countries. P Israel is going to have to deal with its internal contradictions as the chaos around it begins to um, begins to be mitigated. And keep an eye on Turkey. You know, we could talk a long time. This is going to have a, this is have, a, have a dramatic effect on on Turkey. The uh, other, uh, there are two others actually I'd like to ask you about, but uh, one of them less significant. It's this one. Um, the United States moved all of its assets, its metaphorical tanks, onto the lawn of the parliament and government of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, in a mass protest against a law which would force organizations to divulge the extent of their foreign funding. A law which both the United States and Canada themselves have. Indeed, you are hunted as a foreign agent in the United States if you, if you even do the, the racing column in a Russian newspaper. Georgia was going to require people to declare the X percent of their budget came from the United States, and they moved heaven and earth to have the uh, law destroyed. And they might not have given up. Maybe regime change in Georgia is on the... Does that not brazenly show the hypocrisy and double standards to... I mean, a blind man could see that. 
And keep in mind that this is not new. The United States has taken the same position with Nicaragua. The Ortega government in Nicaragua took the same action in creating essentially a Foreign Agent Registration Act law and um, eventually um, arrested people who refused to uh, go along with that law. And the United States, of course, denounced them and sanctioned, extensively sanctioned um, Nicaragua for doing exactly what the United States does. And what we're seeing, you know, it, I, I, and I think this is an example for countries such as um, Saudi Arabia, for countries who now are being put in a position where they, as as uh, Kamala Harris has, you know, basically said to the global South, you have to be with us or against us, that they have to, quote, you know, make a decision. I think they're looking at the hypocrisy here on the outside. They can see it. And the United States may even be able to get away with it in the short run. But the countries on the outside who are looking in are now saying, you know, this uh, dishonesty, this uh, hypocrisy and contradictory behavior that says, you know, you want a feudalistic system where, you know, you can be the nobility and we all have to be peasants isn't going to work for us. This is what I believe is causing countries in Africa to protest and wave um, Russian flags. This is what's causing countries in the Middle East to look to the Eurasian uh, coalition of countries and say, we want people that at least when we make a deal and shake hands with them, that they'll agree not to meddle in our internal interests. They'll agree not to sanction us um, outside of the UN uh, rules and regulations. And we won't have to deal with these types of hypocritical contradictions. So even when the U.S. gets away with it, the rest of the world is watching at a time when the U.S. is forcing the world into, a, into an even more um, distinct multipolar system than would be organically forming on its own. Uh, as you bring up Africa, Blinken is uh, headed for uh, Ethiopia, where he will land on an, in an airport built by China. He'll be received in administrative buildings uh, that were built by China. He'll drive to the capital, Addis Ababa, along a highway that was built by China. What can Blinken offer the Ethiopians that can compete with that? Blinken can offer nothing. And in fact, the Ethiopians and the rest of the world, I'm sure, are looking at the SVB uh, bank system. And they're saying, you know, we're looking at China's economic system. We're looking at Russia's economic system. You tried to sanction them out of um, uh, you know, out of business, and they're still going strong. They're again, you know, my father used to have a saying: "Children don't listen; they watch and learn." And I would argue that the same thing for these nations. They they're watching and they're saying, "Yes, you have the power and authority right now to get away with a lot, but if you want us to join you in a coalition, we're going to watch you." And they're looking at the U.S. system and they're seeing it in collapse in every way, shape, or form. They're looking at China, and the word that the two words, when you think of um, diplomacy, the two words that the United States, that you cannot associate with the U.S., which I think are the most important words to associate with diplomats, are stability and justice, a just system where everyone is treated the same, and stability where the acts of diplomacy creates greater stability in a region is in a, uh, or, or in a country. These They're looking at the U.S. Uh, uh, bombing of the Nord Stream 2, and if, that, if it wasn't bad enough, they're coming up with a, literally a childish hoax to argue that's just collapsed before they could even um, barely get it out of the ma their mouths. They're trapped in this childish hoax that they came up with afterwards. The, the, the rest of the country see this, and they're saying um, China and Russia seem more stable. 
They seem more economically stable. Their governments step in when they need to to take stabilizing actions within their e economy. The United States has this magical economy that says all we have to do is allow companies to make maximum profit and somehow it'll work out. And the countries are seeing that neoliberal liberalism only works to funnel money to a very a uh, tiny uh, number of oligarchs at the top. And so people are moving in the direction of stability. They're moving in the direction of uh, justice and non-interference. And Tony Blinken is just going there. I mean, his, 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 um, his history is he carried Joe Biden's coat and umbrella for 20 years, and that's how he was revor rewarded with his job. He has no history of being a diplomat, and clearly he has no clue how to be a diplomat. China, I'll, am I saying this? China made it clear if they were to call um, Tony Blinken and comment on the Middle East, they'd say, this is what happens when you send a boy to do a man's job. Yes. Uh, finally, Garland, it's red carpet time. Uh, the Oscars. Uh, was it a sign, uh, a, a straw in the wind, that Zelensky asked to come to the Oscars and the Oscars knocked it back? Oh, absolutely. It seems that as though, you know, people are seeing the writing handwriting on the wall. And particularly if you think about Hollywood, you know, they can quickly turn their back on, on, on someone. No one can cancel you quicker than Hollywood. They're looking at Zelensky and they're understanding that things are not going in his direction. And I would argue that the SVB, um, this particular financial issue is going to make it a lot harder to get the next uh, $25 billion or whatever they want to hand over to Ukraine. And it, not only that, it's going to make it harder for him to uh, continue to invest in crypto scams, which is they've been pretty good at doing. I think Hollywood sees the writing on the wall and they are distancing themselves from someone who they probably understand may soon be out of power in one shape or another. Gala Nixon, as always, a real pleasure to have you on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the poll is now well over uh, 20,000 votes and I've got to tell you, it is embarrassingly, overwhelmingly the view of the public that the BBC certainly ain't impartial. Uh, here's from uh, the uh, YouTube chat, uh, Saber Crosby. George, your monologue on Lineker was spot on. Hopefully it will be made into a short clip so we can share the truth to the masses. Keep up the good work, Top Cat. My good friends get to call me TC, as they say. I'll be right back after this short break. 60 seconds, count them. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Eric is in Virginia. He wants to talk about the Nord Stream. Let's go to Virginia. Eric, welcome. All right. I wanted to uh, talk about the cover story regarding the Nord Stream uh, um, explosion. I'm wondering yeah. if there's it, possible uh, kernel of truth to what they're saying. I was reading the German press, and they were saying they actually identified two of the people 
in terms of the passports, who they are, but they're not revealing their names. Do you think there's something additional did they, going did on? Did they helpfully leave their, uh, yeah, uh, Eric, did they leave their passports helpfully on the boat? Like the <laughs> one that was found at uh, O'Hare? Yeah, pretty clumsy I, I, of them. I can't make up my mind whether it's a hundred percent BS or or whether something else is going on there. That and then the other question is why aren't they bringing that to the UN uh, as evidence of some, of a major crime that uh, they should be investigating as well? Well, it would be the biggest commercial crime in all history, right? Uh, it was it, it represents a loss of twenty three billion dollars. Now, as as crimes go, that, that's pretty big. Uh, so yes, you wonder about that. Um, I, I believe Seymour Hersh. Uh, I believe that the United States did it with the assistance of Norway, one of the main beneficiaries. Uh, the U.S. being the main beneficiary. Uh, the biggest loser, of course, was Germany and the rest of Europe. Uh, the idea that a few guys on a sailboat uh, who are so stupid they left their passports behind, uh, that they did it um, 200 meters deep in the sea, uh, encased in several inches of concrete, and were able to identify where the proper joints were, that they should blow up exactly there, with the kind of gear you would get on a sailing boat, uh, it's just ridiculous. So they, as Garland just said, they introduced the concept of a second boat and then a third boat. Now we've got a flotilla of sailing boats bob, bob, bobbing along in the Baltic uh, with uh, amateurs uh, taking turns to dive the 200 meters down. I think uh, what one of my Patreon supporters said is true, that this story belongs in the drawer marked. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. So I caution you, Eric, to give yourself a shake. It's BS. And it sunk before it even got off the slipway. Carl is in Ohio. Carl. Hey, George. Hi. Hi, nice to talk to you. What would you like to say? Oh, uh, the banking uh, collapse in California, SVB, uh, Silicon yeah. Valley Bank. Uh, from what I gathered, is, uh, they loaned money to the U.S. government uh, for the Ukraine war. And uh, I think it has something to do with all those billions of dollars to Ukraine. I don't know. It's getting close to a trillion dollars. I said that's a lot of money, you know. You know, and I said, "Wow, that's well." A lot I'll of tell money. you what happened. Uh, they what what they did, Carl, with the, the basically they had a bank balance so large they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, they didn't invest it in the economy. Uh, they invested it in U.S. Treasury bonds. The yield on U.S. Treasury bonds uh, is little more than one. 0.5%. I think it's 1.55%. Uh, and the, uh, therefore, demand for U.S. Treasury bonds is falling. 
because you can get better yields on other kinds of bonds, both in the U.S. and abroad. And so the price of those bonds was rising. The price of the U.S. Treasury bonds was falling. And because of their incompetence, the executives discovered that they would have to uh, distress sell uh, their U.S. Treasury bonds. They discovered that the price of those was uh, sufficiently low uh, that it left them with a, a big hole in their books. And of course, news travels fast. People decided that they weren't going to take any risks with their money, so they, enough of them demanded their money out of the bank. The bank couldn't pay, and the, bank, the run on the bank was sufficient that the bank had to announce uh, that it needed to raise uh, $1.5 billion in 48 hours because it was in trouble. This triggered an even bigger run on the bank, as it would if your bank announced that it was $1.5 billion down and was going to have to raise money uh, from somewhere. Uh, you'd get your money out as quickly as you could, and the run on SVB became such that the bank collapsed. The U.S. government did not step in uh, to prop it up to save it, uh, presumably because they realized that they'd be damned if they did, damned if they didn't. If they moved in to bail it out, it would trigger a big bank crisis right across the United States. As people realized, we were back to 2008, if not 1929. So, you're right in one sense. What, do the, what does the money invested in the U.S. government do? It pays for the $100 billion plus that's been sent to Ukraine. It pays for, uh, instead of taxing uh, the richest people in America, it pays for tax cuts to the richest people uh, in America. It pays for vanity projects and particularly military vanity projects that achieve nothing economically, are presumably intended for prestige, for a country whose prestige is losing <laughs> like snow blowing off uh, a wall. Uh, it's losing its prestige everywhere, as demonstrated by the peace deal uh, in Beijing. Carl, thanks for that call. God bless the great state of Ohio. Seems to have been a tremendous run of catastrophe uh, in Ohio, most of it man-made by the economic system that Biden and the Republicans, for that matter, uh, uh, hold to. Uh, now, let's hear from Mike in Newcastle on Lineker. Go ahead, Mike. George, just a couple of quick questions. It's my first time uh, calling in. I'm a massive fan of the show. It's, it's absolutely refreshing to have someone like yourself who's ultimately a beacon of hope for the kind of, you know, the silent majority, if you like. So, so thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, George, we couple, go ahead. Sorry, a couple of um, points are like, You've got all these kind of multi-millionaire celebrities and TV presenters breaking their neck and to stand with Lineker, but where, where were these people when the British people uh, needed someone to stand with when they couldn't visit their elderly parents in the, in the nursing homes or they couldn't see their dying relatives in hospitals? So 
Yeah, yeah where, where were these people then? You know, the, I didn't see uh, many of them then. They and, were uh, silent. Uh, they were silent, Mike, except when they were egging the government on for more. Leinecker and uh, his friends are essentially Blairites. And the Blairites' role in the period you're talking about was to demand even more draconian action uh, by the government. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go back and, and look at it. Look, nobody coming across in the Channel uh, boats is competing with Gary Lineker for a job. Yeah? Gary Lineker's a multi-millionaire uh, sports presenter. There's nobody currently on a dinghy in the Channel going to compete for his job. Uh, but they may compete for other people's jobs. They may... Gary Lineker doesn't rely on the, the local GP and the local hospital for, uh, for a hospital appointment. I'm sure... I'd be astounded if he didn't have private health insurance. But most of the people in the country do not have private health insurance and are dependent on it. And so the number of people in the country is of importance to them in a way that it isn't to Lineker. Now, I know that many of the people supporting Lineker are doing so for the best of reasons, a hatred of racism, who could hate racism more than me as the father of five mixed-race children uh, with an Indonesian wife and who has represented more people of color in the British Parliament than any other politician in history? Who could hate racism more than me? But this is not about race. It may be for some, but fundamentally it isn't about race because most of the people coming across the channel are white. 60% of the people coming off the channel are coming from Albania. Albanian people are white people. Albanian people are leaving a country that you could fly from to London for £30. But they're spending £5,000 to come over in a dinghy. Why? Because they wouldn't get a visa to fly for £30 because their intention on coming is not for a holiday. It's to economically migrate to Britain. They're not fleeing war. There hasn't been a war in Albania since 1945. They're not fleeing oppression. There can't be any oppression in Albania because it is a candidate member for the European Union and a candidate member for NATO. So it cannot be a repressive country. Ipso facto, you cannot be a refugee if you are from Albania. Now, of course, the other 40% will contain people who are fleeing wars that we ourselves were involved in, starting, leading in some cases. And these people have an absolute right to be refugees. And Britain takes... We're not even in the top 10 countries in the world for the number of refugees that we take. But most of the people coming across the channel are economic migrants. Now, I've got nothing against economic migrants because every country needs immigration. But it needs to be controlled immigration. Only the very biggest libertarian capitalists and lunatic Trotskyites don't believe in borders. 
You have to have borders or you aren't a country. And if you have borders, you've got to control who comes in. And the numbers coming in have got to be to suit your economic needs. And if we need more immigrants, we should take them from the Commonwealth, to whom we owe a debt, and with whom we have historic, cultural, and linguistic links. Not with Albania. Albania was fighting against us in the war. They don't speak English. We owe Albania nothing. So we must separate these issues of political asylum. And for nearly 30 years as a member of parliament, I dealt with political asylum cases and economic migration. My own grandparents were economic migrants from Ireland uh, to Britain. How can I hate them? I don't hate them. But the British people have got a right to decide who comes into their country and decide the method by which they come into their country. So I'm not in the same boat with Gary Lineker, though I understand why decent people uh, have been offended by some of the sloganeering around the Tory government's response to this crisis. Personally, if I was them, I'd lose the slogans and actually do the job of defending our frontier, our border, and bringing about a system of controlled immigration rather than waving flags to mislead people uh, about it. Uh, YouTube chat, James Anthony Ward, read the Nord Stream. It's a joke. The pipeline is designed to take the anchor of a ship or an aircraft carrier, hitting it at full bore, as we say in Dublin. That's a zinger of a falsehood. God bless Dublin. Uh, a man that's hearts in Dublin, at least in Ireland, is Tommy in Glasgow. He's a legend and he's back. Tommy, go on yourself. Salam alaikum, my dearest brother. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah At least in Belfast, where my, my grandfather was born and my mother. But anyway, George, <coughs> excuse me. Now, what a wonderful show. Uh, God bless all your wonderful listeners. The word mortgage, mortgage, is a French word that stems from the word grip of death. A wonderful book with the same title written by Michael Robotham uh, that I would implore yourself and anyone else to listen, uh, to read, to find out exactly how this financial system controls us all. Indeed, the three main monarchy religions have uh, said that, you know, you do not deal in this interest. If you take it back, the word... Uh, bank came from the word bench where the goldsmiths, the latter-day bankers, would cut their gold. And on the grip of death, people would shake their hand and give their house that they probably built with straw, hay, wheat or whatever, and went to them because there was no welfare state. And on the grip of death, they would shake a hand. Now, the, 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 the modern-day bankers stem from, uh, if you look at Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who sent his sons to Frankfurt. Florence, Paris, Amsterdam, London, and finance kings to fight wars against each other. And on the back of that, the kings introduced the taxation system that we live under, where the taxes up the bill, well, whatever, they went money taxes. Uh, so, and the interest free money is a solution that is there for us all if we were indeed to want to go down it. But sadly, the political leaders, uh, they treat us like half wits. 
half-witted Fangitas, these crackpot McDougals, they're only interested in cutting the Todgers and Fangitas off of our young. They're not interested in educating people at source on how to behave uh, financially prudent. You know, we should all step away from the banking system if we can. We should all step away from the love of this uh, economic system that only enslaves us and enslaves people further down the chain. God bless you, brother. God bless you. You're absolutely right, Tommy. Uh, Of course, uh, Rothschild did that. Indeed, all the bankers did that. George George W. Bush's grandfather, Prescott Bush, uh, was funding the uh, Nazi economy uh, in the run-up to the Second World War. Uh, some of the cars we drive today uh, are, uh, uh, are made by companies that were making their fortunes uh, on, the, on the corpses uh, of six million Jewish people and millions of others in the Holocaust and so on. So uh, these people have no religion. They have no nationality. Uh, their flag is green or gold. It's greenbacks or bars of gold, these people. And you taught me uh, many years ago now, best part of 20 years ago, that point about Mort Gage. Uh, Mort Gage is the grip of death. And my goodness, how many people have been in the grip uh, of that. Tommy, are you on Twitter? Uh, sadly, no. I lost it through Nicola Sturgeon when she tried to ban Christmas. I retorted back to her. And uh, sadly, I, I lost it. Why, brother, why? Why? No, I was going to uh, I was going to promote you because uh, a lot of people write in saying how can they follow uh, Tommy? Have well, you got well, any well, other social media platforms? At the moment, no. Our modus operandi is to, to go away from it. But indeed, God willing, after the next holy month that's coming up in the next week or so, uh, I shall be doing something similar to yourself with a podcast coming back live. Not not, not forgetting that I was the original citizen journalist in Scotland that exposed Craig White for what he did. And just a week uh, uh, to the 10th anniversary next week, where poor old Francisco Sandaza, I managed to release him from the contract of Glasgow Rangers to the tune of one million. Uh, but yeah, I, I shall be coming back and doing my citizen journalism and taking it on the airways. And at that point, George, God willing, inshallah, so panel for your, your help uh, uh, and for the good listeners, then yeah, of course, uh, I'll be of course, doing and we'll, uh, we'll we'll make sure we'll make sure everyone knows how to get you. Thanks, Tommy in Glasgow. Uh, Paul Metz Cohen says, Oprah Winfrey has lost five hundred and ninety million dollars in the Silicon Valley Bank. As we say in Glasgow, so sad, too bad. Never mind. Richard is in New York on Donald Trump. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, thanks, George. And also, George, I promise I'm sending money next week. So Richard from New York is sending that money next week. Mark that down in the book. Anyhow. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Yeah. Anyhow, talking about the cities, that gentleman was called from the Bronx. One place you don't want to be is from the Bronx. Let me just say it's not some uh, nice little village in Derbyshire. It's it's pretty much, I don't think they've ever seen a tree there before in their life in the Bronx. Anyhow. He was, you know, basically Trump's hands were tied. Everybody knows that. Even before the inauguration, there was a special counsel to investigate, you know, this Russia collusion. And it wasn't just the Democrats. The Republicans were on board for for it also because it's the uniparty, right? Sure. The Republicans, Democrats, they were all in, sure. in it together, right, George? So, of course, and, and he said, talked about tr- Trump let the Donbass get bombed by the Ukrainians. If Trump said anything about defending Russia, the media would have been screaming Russian and Putin puppet. 
And uh, another yeah, thing I get that all that. Said, I, I get all that. I, I get all that, Richard. And I get where you're coming from. And you're absolutely right that his presidency was deliberately hobbled uh, by the uh, Russia Gate uh, hoax. And uh, I, I agree with you about that. But nobody forced them to employ John Bolton, did they? Trump, but definitely it was the people surrounding him who was help, helping him make the decision, maybe Kushner, you know, his, his daughter's uh, husband, making, bring these people, bring these, he, was, he was saying he wanted to go battle the swamp, but he was hiring the swamp to try to help him, you know, so he was, exactly. he was burying exactly. himself. I hope he you doesn't know, do that again if he gets back, Richard. I must press on because of the hour. Uh, good call. Thanks for it. David is in Orange County on immigration. Go ahead, David. Yeah. Uh, how you doing, George? Love you, man. I watch you all the time. Thank you. Uh, my question you, is, man. okay, the Ukrainian war is just about to wrap up. And what are we going to do with all of those refugees? If we're going to have uh, Nazi refugees all over the place, Biden seems to love them. He gives them all kinds of money. So when this war is over and they need a place to run, they're going to come over. I don't want them here. I don't want them here. I don't want them here. Well, you've definitely, you're definitely going to have them, uh, though not as many in America as there will be in Europe. I already are in Europe. Nine million people have already left Ukraine and are living in Europe. A country like Ireland has an astounding number. I forget the number now, but I, I have a feeling it's a six-figure number of refugees in uh, a country like Ireland with a population of five million. Uh, so not many of that nine million will be going back uh, to the Ukraine. They get, uh, to call it preferential treatment, is, of course, <laughs> an understatement. Uh, Ukrainian refugees are fast-tracked, literally at the airport, uh, where there are signs in Ukrainian and, uh, 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 what do you call it, the zone that you can, uh, uh, fast zone, uh, into the countries that they turn up in. That will not last forever, because some, some of those Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees will turn out to be rum characters indeed. Uh, as many of the Albanian and Kosovan refugees uh, turned out to be. Many others will be perfectly decent people uh, uh, only seeking to work hard and make life better for themselves and their families. But there will be amongst them uh, um, criminals and extremists and uh, all kinds of bad apples. And so there will be a direct relationship uh, between the numbers that a country takes in and the amount of problems that will result. And I think that we will be in problems in Europe for many decades to come as a result of this conflict, which never needed to happen. Uh, you'll take your share of them, David, no doubt, but then America's share of refugees is never as great as it should be. Thank you for the call. Alison Woolley has written into the show, George, I confess I allowed them to turn me against you in the past. How wrong I was, and I apologize. You are one of a very few emerging heroes of mine in the last three years. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Alison. And line one is 
Richard in New York on the Bronx and Russia phobia. Go ahead, Richard. Hello, George. You're number one. Uh, the man had a total cockeyed view of the Bronx. I grew up there. My first uh, 25 years was spent in the Bronx. I'm almost 80 now, and I've lived in every borough. I've never met anybody that has lived in every borough of New York City. But the point is, Bronx has plenty of trees, botanical gardens, the Bronx Zoo, world famous, Pelham Bay Park, Van Cortlandt Park, blah, blah, blah. That's just uh, to get the guy to uh, come visit the Bronx, and maybe he'll see something different. <clears throat> now, I, I think we should about- all one day visit the Bronx. We should all get together uh, at, the, uh, <laughs> at the botanical gardens. Yes, Richard, go on. Bronx by a famous um, uh, witticist, if that's what they call the man of wit, who said, the Bronx, no thonks. Now, that might, uh, <laughs> you know, tickle your uh, funny bone, but it's, uh, it's not the case. What I want to mention mainly is this bad mountain of Russia, the people, the Russophobia, I guess you call it. People uh, yeah. just kind of conditioned that. But I listened to a thing that was recorded about 10 years ago by a guy named Webster Tarpley, who uh, did a, 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 a presentation to the National Press Club in uh, Washington, in which he uh, mentioned that uh, 150 years ago, before that day, on the 24th of September in uh, 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War, Seven Russian warships, modern at the time, warships, sailed into New York Harbor and a little smaller number later into San Francisco to show uh, Russia, in the form of the Tsar at the time, supported the North in the Civil War. The North had had some uh, kind of bad uh, battles just before that, and they were kind of not feeling very confident. And your nation, the nation of Great Britain and uh, the French nation, wanted to come into the war on the side of the slave-holding South. So I don't know what was behind uh, the Tsar's uh, Ah, It's a very powerful powerful, uh, and interesting uh, call, and we need to talk again in the future. Alas, not uh, tonight because we're running out of time. Isn't it wonderful that we've had here tonight a spirited debate about the Bronx, the quality of life there? I'm not all that familiar with the Bronx, though I have been there, and I know some of the fighters that came out of there. Uh, But this I do know. We've got a lot of viewers in the Bronx, and they've all got a point of view. So we love the Bronx. We love New York. Richard Wolf is from New York, and anyone that can produce Richard Wolf is good by me. Jamie Conway donates £4.99. Thank you. Love the show, George. My late friend Johnny Murby was a good socialist and long-standing listener and supporter of yours. R.I.P. Johnny. And I join you, Jamie, in that. Now, the poll is closed. 21,135 people voted. How's that for a two-hour show? Uh, And it was simply 
uh, overwhelming. On Twitter, only 10% of people thought that the BBC was impartial. On YouTube, only 11%. On uh, Telegram, only 7%. And on the YouTube community poll, only 5%. And I do think that that is reflective. It's a huge number. And it's not scientific, of course, but it is, I think, reflective of the growing feeling in our country that the system of a state broadcaster that you are forced to pay for and a considerable amount of money for programs that you don't watch, don't enjoy, certainly could never watch with your elderly mother sitting next to you, for presenters paid a king's ransom uh, who have nothing to do with your life or your views and who oftentimes, like for example in the Brexit debate, often seem to hate the country that's paying for them. In fact, I often think when listening to a BBC radio and sometimes very rarely watching BBC TV that the people that work at the BBC, Tony Blair types overwhelmingly, don't actually like the British people all that much. They don't like their rough ways. They don't like their rough definitions. They don't like their vocabulary. They don't like their political instincts. They don't like how they vote, either at elections or in referenda but they like our money and they go on taking that money whilst feeling free to hate the people who are paying them and to constantly do them down, run them down. And I think we're coming to the end of our tether on that. As I said, I hope persuasively in my opening, it's not that I like Gary Lineker, I don't. It's not even that I entirely agree with what he tweeted, though I agreed with some parts of it. It's the fact that we have to save free speech in this country. If we don't, then nothing else matters. There's a reason why in the United States, it's the First Amendment to the Constitution that protects free speech, because everything else depends on it. If you do not have free speech, you have no freedom or democracy at all. And so I support Gary Lineker's right to free speech, especially for the reasons I gave, that he doesn't even work for the BBC and that they've never said a word to Lord Sugar or many others that have constantly interfered in the political life of our country. It's because they liked when Gary Lineker said Ben Corbyn. They like when Lord Sugar called on people not to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. If you trusted him as an East End boy made good, he said laughably. Lord Sugar I wouldn't trust him to look after my coat and my umbrella.
as Blinken once did for Senator Joe Biden. It's been marvelous for me. I've overshot my mark. It's 10.01. I'm not allowed to do that. So I'll go quickly now and merely invite you to join me again on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. UK time on Wednesday for the midweek mother of all talk shows. Bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? Good night.